Mark chapter 8. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We have made it to the 8th chapter of the book of Mark. And this morning we're going to be looking, Lord willing, at, at 21 verses. Are you laughing with me or at me? And the reason is this forms a unit that I think will make more sense to you when we get into it that needs to have a beginning, a middle, and an end that all serves one simple purpose. Mark chapter 8. The most important thing that we do when we gather together is turn our attention to God's Word. And when we turn our attention to God's Word, the most important part of this moment is actually reading it. So let's hear from the very words of God. Mark chapter 8. In those days when there was again a large crowd, they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. His disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. He directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and he broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish, and after he blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were full. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there. And he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Well, 12. 
When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said, well, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? One of the most familiar parts of our Bibles, in fact, this is familiar to most people who don't even know much about the Bible, is what we wrongly call the Lord's Prayer. It's recorded in Matthew 6, 9 to 13. And the reason we wrongly call it the Lord's Prayer is that's really the disciples' prayer. Because in that prayer, he teaches us to pray things that he could never pray, like forgive us our sins. We often call John 17 the prayer for the disciples, but that's really the Lord's Prayer because he says, restore to me the glory which I had before the foundation of the world. No disciple could ever pray that prayer. In any event, we call it the Lord's Prayer. We pray it. We've memorized this. I memorized this from a very young age. Regrettably, I thought of it more as I grew up as more of a good luck charm than an actual paradigm or pattern for teaching me how to, how to speak with God. I remember we used the Lord's Prayer in sports. Uh, we would pray the Lord's Prayer before games, uh, before wrestling matches, cross-country meets, track meets, baseball games. I remember we would get together, we would put our hands together, we would pray the Lord's Prayer, felt good about ourselves and got, thought God would help us win because we said the Lord's Prayer. The truth is, I didn't really stop much to think about what it actually was saying and what it actually meant and what it actually was functioning for us to be. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is heaven. Next phrase. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is instructing the people to ask God as a, as a pattern for prayer, to ask God daily to be fed physically. We've discussed this in brief before. When is the last time you did this? Now, I'm aware that we have some folks who could have been struggling who have genuinely said, Lord, if you don't provide food or money for us to get food, we're not gonna eat. I'm not overlooking that at all. But this is not a common prayer for us to pray in Kansas City in 2019. We wake up in the morning and we say, give us today. Lord, give us bread today. Let me eat today. If you don't answer my prayer to give me physical sustenance, I will go hungry. And yet, that was the instruction that he gave the disciples as a pattern for praying. This made absolute sense in Jesus' name. Jesus' day, rather. Food was hard to come by. It was complicated to get food. It was complicated to store food. No refrigerators, no ways to keep food much beyond the day's rations. So organizing every day's food was a large part of organizing every person's day. You had to get up in the morning and think about it. How you're going to eat? Where, where you gonna eat? Where's food going to come from? And Jesus' prayer was perfectly applicable to, the, to these original hearers, but it makes us no less dependent on God for providing us our daily sustenance as well. The narrative before us shows this to be true, that they had a great need for daily bread. Mark is about to 
give us a second account of Jesus miraculously feeding, a, miraculously feeding a large crowd of people. But this is not just a story of human interest. This is not just a story for, for children's Bible drawings. Mark is recording what Jesus was teaching by this feeding. And the focus is on these disciples and what they should have seen and what they should have learned from witnessing these two feedings. We're gonna cover these 21 verses and we're, listen, we're gonna use a, a snorkel and not a scuba today. We're, we need to go fast because it's one section. We need to get the whole story, although we could spend multiple weeks on each of these little vignettes. As we unpack it, I'm a little embarrassed about our proposition for our outline today. I tried hard not to make it say what it's saying because I'm not a big fan of, of multiple, alliteration, multiple alliteration, but this is how it came out. We're going to discover together three lasting lessons from loaves. That's <laughs> just what it is. These are lessons that were supposed to be lasting and they are lessons and they come from these loaves. So make fun of me at lunch, but that's just what it is. It's three lasting lessons from loaves. First is in verses one to nine. It's really simple, but it's very clear. A lesson on God's provision. A lesson on God's provision. Namely, that bread sustains the body. In other words, food sustains the body. Food will come from him. He's the sustainer. Let's dive into verse one. Large crowd has accumulated. They've learned about Jesus. Remember, he is in the Decapolis. He is in the area Look back for a second at John chapter five where this happened. In John five, verse 14. Jesus has cast a whole group of demons out of this man. The herdsmen ran away in verse 14 of chapter five, reported to the city and the country. The people came out to see what it was that was happened, that had happened. They came to Jesus, observed the man who had been demon possessed, sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man, very man who had had the legion, the multiple uh, demons in him, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to him how, to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man about all the swine. They ran off the cliff, into the ocean, into the lake, rather. They began to implore Jesus to leave their region. A curious thing. This, wouldn't you want him to stay around? They were terrified at his power. And he was getting into the boat. As he was getting in the boat, the man comes up to him and had been demon-possessed, begging him, imploring him that he might go with him. He wanted to be the 13th disciple. And Jesus did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed. Back to Mark 8. Where did this large crowd come from in a Gentile area to come to see the Jewish Miracle worker. I don't think it's hard to speculate. This man had been a really good evangelist. This man had been very clear to tell the people, the Gentile people, you've got you to hear what this man did for me. So when he comes there, it's no surprise that 4,000 people start following him around. 
Pick it up in verse one. In those days, there was again a large crowd. Mark is emphatic. Again, a large crowd. This is typical, in other words. They had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for these people because they have remained with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. Jesus sees the crowd. And in verse two, he feels compassion. Splanknon. It's one of my favorite Greek words, splanknon. It means your bowels, your, your torso that has feelings. We know what that's like. We felt butterflies in our stomach. We know what it's like to drop off the top of a roller coaster and feel our stomach uh, do mysterious things. We know what it's like to receive wonderful news and be ecstatic for someone who's experiencing something wonderful or that's happening to us. We also understand what it means to hear terrible news and feel like we've been punched in the what? The splankton, the stomach. This is an interesting word because Jesus is saying, I, my compassion is not just a, a disposition. I feel their burden. I know their hunger. You have to ask, was he hungry too? But he projected all of that compassion toward them. The awareness of Jesus is always wonderfully encouraging to me. Two things should be noted here. First of all, Jesus was aware and he cared that they had been with him three days and not eaten. Secondly, the people had such an interest in Jesus. They were willing to follow him for three days and actually to follow him without lunch, without provision, without a sack lunch, without a, a, a Yeti cooler or a, a Coleman cooler or anything to, to take their lunch with and follow him way out, text tells us, into a desolate place, far from any market, far from any access to food, because they could not chance missing anything Jesus would say. These Gentiles were attracted to our Savior. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't wait to hear what he said. They couldn't wait to watch what he did. They wanted to be near him. They wanted to follow him, even at their own personal expense. They followed him without preparation and they followed him without regret. So Jesus reasons in verse three, he thinks out loud. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will pass out, literally, they will faint on the way because some of them have come from a great distance. The Decapolis extended about 90 miles down the Jordan River Valley. These people have collected and come to, to see Jesus and he understands where they came from and cares about that and knows that there's no off ramps with Hardee's and McDonald's every three miles on the freeway. It's a long way from food. They may pass out. They may faint. So his disciples, we're going to find out that the disciples don't get it. <laughs> this is the moment of their display that they don't get it. The disciples asked him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Should something have been rocking around in their memory banks that he fed 20,000 people a few months earlier with a boy's lunch? The disciples, these 
wonderful men of insight like you and me. Well, where's the, where's the 7-Eleven? Where are we going to go get? Where's the Costco? How do we get enough people to, to feed these, food to feed these people? And he was asking them, well, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. Now, lots of commentators want to tell you how seven is the perfect number. Seven is, seven is mostly significant because that's what he started with, with loaves. And we'll see how many baskets full he ends up with at the end. There's a collateral parallel there. When you see loaves here, by the way, don't think of Wonder Bread. I'm sorry, you're healthy. Of wheat bread, you know, the, the, that's, you know these perfectly sliced loaves of bread that would, would feed multiple people multiple sandwiches. A loaf here, the best way to think of that is about a six inch piece of pita bread. That's a loaf. They had seven of them. So he takes control, verse six. He directed the people to sit down on the ground. I'm just amazed that he can tell 4,000 people, everybody have a seat and they had a seat. And taking the seven loaves and the miracle is here in verse six. He gave thanks and he broke them. The Greek means he tore them apart. He took the pita bread and he tore it. Just have that visual image. Whether he stacked all seven together and did it one time, whether he did it each loaf, he, he tore these pieces of pita apart. And the Greek is incredible. He started, he continued giving them to the disciples to serve them and they served them to the people. Oh, to see this miracle. I gotta confess, I, I, when I read the scriptures, sometimes my sanctified imagination gets the best of me. I just wanna see what this would look like. I would have liked to have had like the right at the table, right where he was, what, the, here's seven loaves and he, he splits it and then he splits it again and it's as big as when he split it the first time. And he continues dividing and it keeps being the same. It's multiplying. It's incredible. It says he started and continued giving them to his disciples to serve them. They fed them to all the people. I mean, wouldn't you like to have seen what this looked like? This bread just kind of grows back. I don't know what it looked like. I want to know so bad. Mark doesn't tell us, neither does Matthew in the parallel passage, by the way. He just kept breaking. Kept breaking and it kept being enough to feed 4,000 people. Now, we don't know if this, were, this was a group of men and there were up to three times that. Do we really have to speculate? 4,000 people from seven pieces of pita bread is enough of a miracle to me without saying that might have been in women and children as well. Likely was. They also had a few small fish. After, after he had blessed them returned thanks and blessed them. He ordered these to be served as well. What do we know about this? Verse eight, they ate and they were full. They were satisfied. Now, if you think it was a little bit odd and fantastical to watch the bread broken and instantly grow back, think of a fish. He just keeps multiplying it. 
Can I just ask you as a footnote, do you believe this happened? Do you believe the miracles of Jesus from Nazareth? Do you believe this happened like this? Well, Jesus not only expected the disciples to believe, but to understand that lesson behind it and to keep that in their memory banks. We'll see that in a moment. They all ate, verse 8, and they were satisfied. And they picked up, here's our number again, seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. He broke them. These are broken pieces. And we get this little footnote from Mark. It's almost an afterthought. Oh, about 4,000 were there. And he sent them away. Why seven? Without going into great biblical numerology and speculation, there were seven pieces of bread. You fed 4,000 people. And in the end, after Jesus performed this miracle, there was still more than he started with. It wasn't just seven little pieces. This was seven baskets full. And I got to think that it would have been good bread. This scene, however, back up a little bit, is not only important for the people being fed and led. This is going to serve, as we'll see in the end of this passage, as an object lessons for the disciples to know and apply. Here, he is providing physical sustenance. Matthew 6, 25 and following says, don't worry about what you're gonna eat, what you're gonna be clothed with. Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be supplied or added to you. The simple point here is Jesus cares for the needs of the people who follow him. His character has not changed since that day till now. He knows about your needs. He expects you to pray about them. He can and will meet them. However, as I was unpacking this lesson in my own heart, I was very aware of the difference between a need and a want. Also very aware for asking God to supply me for things that he may have already supplied me money for, but I may have spent on other things. Do you pray for the things that you need? Can you distinguish those from the things you want? Are we making sure that we actually recognize that God has has already supplied for the most part our daily bread before we ever ask for it. So that's an important lesson and it's one that he's going to expect the disciples to have remembered here in a few moments. A lesson on God's provision. Bread that sustains the body comes from God. Closely linked is number two, a second lesson. A second lasting lesson from bread, from loaves. A lesson on religious contamination. This is about bread that pollutes the soul. Here's Mark's word again. And immediately he links it together. This is stitched together. It's supposed to be tied together. And right after that, immediately he gets in a boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. By the way, in Matthew, Matthew's account of this same feeding and this same uh, leaving in chapter 15, verse 39, Matthew locates their destination as, quote, the region of Magadan. Well, who's right and who's wrong? Well, we know these were close to um, uh, the northwestern shore. Lots of geographical debate about this. 
Did Mark and did Matthew contradict one another? No, no. They're not confused. They're not contradicting each other. They're using two different names to refer to the same broad area between the towns of Magdala and Capernaum. And I only bring that up because should you be reading a commentary, people get all, all sorts of heartburn over, well, this is what Matthew says. This is what Mark says. They're in conflict. One of them must not have got their facts right. No, they're just... They're just cousin towns like saying Overland Park and Prairie Village. This is an important marker. Regardless of where exactly it is, Jesus has now left the Gentile area of the Decapolis and is now back in the Jewish territory of Galilee. Mark has escorted us to the final year of Jesus' earthly life. The cross is now less than a year away. He's going to have a little junket where he goes up north, Caesarea Philippi, to talk to his disciples. And then it is a march south for his ministry in Judea and Jerusalem in preparation for his death. <laughs> he gets off at Dalmanutha. And verse 11, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven why? To test him. This is getting old. He's getting dogged by these, these people. They were a contingent that came up from Jerusalem. They also gathered other local synagogue officials in order to trap Jesus. They had their livelihood, their positions of authority, their positions of stature threatened because Jesus was better, more powerful, more authoritative than they were. And they didn't like it. Instead of seeing him as the Messiah, the one that they had looked forward to for generations, they actually rejected him because he was a threat to them. Pronounced selfishness. Matthew adds, by the way, this is significant, that the Sadducees were there with him. Any time in the New Testament where you see the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the same place and on the same team, you better make note. Pharisees and the Sadducees were the liberals and the conservatives. They didn't like each other at all. The Pharisees were constantly on the Sadducees. You, you can see this later where, where um, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed you died and that was it. Pharisees taught an afterlife. They thought they were fantastical. They were constantly at odds with each other, but when it came to Jesus, they linked arms. Look at the Lord's response in verse 12. Sighing deeply in his spirit. The original says, a deep, painful breath he took. You can feel the eye roll. You can feel the shaking of the head. You can hear the deep breath and the exhale. You're here again, doing the same thing, accusing me of the same stuff, trying to lead people astray. So he says to them, why does this generation sink for a sign? Stop right there. The word generation has tripped a lot of people up. It just means this, this, these people, this group of people. It can, some, it's an elastic term. Sometimes it can mean a generation of people who are alive at this time. And sometimes it just means the people who are in this area. I think that's the application here. Why do the people around here, led by the Pharisees and Sadducees, why do you people seek for a sign? Truly I say, no sign will be given to you, to this generation. 
We know he wasn't saying the people who were alive at that point because he's about to perform a lot of signs coming up in the next few chapters. He's basically saying, why should I prove anything to you when I've already proven everything to you and you still don't believe? Especially targeting the Pharisees who wanted to trap him, who wanted to condemn him, and they did not marvel at who he was, what he had done, what he could do. And Jesus simply would not gratify the wicked demands of these hard-hearted unbelievers. Verse 13, leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. It seems like the only time Jesus can get away is to jump in a boat and put water between him and the people who are hounding him. He knew the Pharisees and the Sadducees well. Matthew 23, 17 and 19, they were blind men. Matthew 23, 24, they were blind guides. It's quite an indictment. Blind men, they couldn't see. Blind guides, they were leading people astray. He's talking about the people of Galilee in this generation. The populace of Galilee had been given unmatched opportunity to see who he was and what he could do. And instead of believing, they rejected him. This is the move that is going to shift Jesus from the north in Galilee to down in Judea in Jerusalem. You know the story. He will meet with a very great triumphant entry that will only last a few days. So they're in the boat. And this is interesting. Verse 14. They had forgotten to take bread. Forgot their lunch. Forgot their lunch boxes. Did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. So we have at least a dozen plus one in the boat. One piece of pita bread. Verse 15. And he was giving them orders saying, watch out, beware of the yeast, the leaven, that which makes a, a, a bread expand and rise. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. <laughs> Verse 16 is humorous. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Guys, we just left the Pharisees. They are leaven, which is always a bad influence in the New Testament. They are a bad influence, the leaven of Herod. This is the bad influence of Herod and his immorality. We already saw that in his beheading of John. The leaven of the Pharisees who were, this is their leaven. This is this frightening part of this. They had biblical attachments, biblical verses, but were leading people astray with those very words of God. We know that from the previous chapter where they were adding to the scriptures the traditions of men. They were mixing, listen, they were mixing their thoughts with God's word, putting it into one blender and saying, this is our authority. That was their leaven. That was their influence. Add to that Herod's influence, which was, oh, I'm Jewish, but I live immorally, antinomianism. And he's saying, watch out for this. Guys, learn the lesson. We just left these Pharisees. I want you to learn what they're about and how you can fight this. This is terrible contamination for your soul. Please listen to me. I'm taking care of your souls. 
In verse 16, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they were hungry. They had no bread. Jesus is intending to teach them something spiritual, but they could not move beyond the physical. How easy is that for you and me? We don't see the macro things that God is doing in our life. We're just tied to what's next. If I can give you an illustration, it's, it's like someone who, who sits stunned after a joke is told because they didn't get it. Have you ever seen that or have you ever been that person? Someone says something funny and everybody laughs and you go, ah, I don't get it. This is no joke. Jesus gave them a lesson and they didn't get what he was teaching them. The lesson was simple. Follow me and not those who will contaminate your mind religiously. Mix God's words and human tradition into a spiritual blender and lead you astray. As we've said over and over, it usually comes in two, two uh, forms. Yes, God's word says that and, God's, and, and human tradition says the popes, the councils, the, the magisterium, the book of Mormon. Then there's also, well, I know God's word says that, but, and they add a superficial interpretation. He was saying, watch out. Watch out, be on guard. Now, we're not gonna finish that lesson right now because this is a lesson that's gonna be recycled in the coming chapters over and over and over again. Don't listen to the blind who are trying to lead the blind. It's contaminating. It pollutes your soul. And this all leads to the climax of this passage. This is why it's all one unit in number three, the third lasting lesson from the loaves. There's a lesson on God's provision, a lesson on religious contamination, and thirdly, a lesson on spiritual understanding. A lesson on spiritual understanding, namely bread that instructs the heart. He says, you need to understand that this bread was intended to teach you something that you didn't get. Verse 17. I love this. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, we don't know if he was aware because he's supernatural. We don't know if he was aware because he was in the same boat and they're saying, we're hungry and just one of us has something to eat. Any parent knows how that goes, right? You got, one, you got five kids and one piece of chocolate. That usually doesn't end very well. So Jesus, aware of this, says to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? You don't get it. You do not see or understand. You have a hardened heart. Now, back in Mark 4, he indicted the people by saying they had eyes, but they couldn't see. And they had ears, but they couldn't hear. Remember the parable of the sower and the seeds? And they said, oh yeah, those people that have eyes, they can't see, ears, they can't hear. That's a quote, by the way, of Jeremiah 5, 21. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Ezekiel 12, 2, same thing. Son of man, you live in the midst of the religious, of rebellious house who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear for they are a rebellious house. This is different. He uses the second person plural. You. There's no one else but them in the boat. He's not talking to the crowds anymore. He's talking to the 12 men 
you have eyes. You can see that you're hungry. You, you, you know you only have one loaf to, to feed us all. You have eyes to see, but you don't see what's going on here. You have ears you can hear, but you don't hear what's really going. What's really going on? What should they have seen and heard? Back to the original lesson. He's the, he just fed multiple thousand peoples and they're on the boat saying, well, I guess we're out. We don't have lunch. Presuming to doubt God in the moment without remembering what God was like in the past. Is that not a lesson for you and me? Do you not do that? Do I not do that all the time? We doubt God in the present because we don't remember God in the past. We doubt the Savior's sustaining presence now because we don't remember and take care to reflect on what he's done for us in the past. Just for a moment, we, we, remember I said this is a Markin sandwich. We've talked about that before. Mark starts a story or gives a very clear demarcation, tells something in the middle and then comes back to that story. This is the sandwich that moves from the out to the in and the in to the out. Let me explain to you what I mean. The first piece of bread in this, in this story was verses 31 to 37 of chapter seven. Jesus heals the man who is deaf and can't talk. Deaf mute, right? Ears that can't hear, that he makes hear. After this, well, right now we're in verses 21 to 21 where Jesus feeds 4,000 Gives a lesson on the loaves. And right at the center of this section that Mark records is him looking at the disciples and says, your eyes are a problem, your ears are a problem. The first piece of bread, he heals a deaf man. You know what happens right after this story? He heals a blind man. You see that? This is on purpose Mark is sandwiching these differently than Luke and did uh, uh, Matthew. And he's saying he can cure the blind. He can cure the, cure, cure the, the mute and the, the deaf, rather. And he can cure the blind. And in the middle, he says, right in the middle of that, and you can't see and you can't hear. That's no accident. Mark is showing us that Jesus is indeed the source and sustainer of all things physical and all things spiritual. Then he says, at the end of verse 18, and you do not remember. You do not remember. There is a library of theology in that little phrase, you do not remember. It's an indictment. It should sting. How, another way it says, how could you not remember? I just fed all these people. A few months ago, I fed more than those people. We're in the boat and you have one piece of bread. And you go, well, I guess that's all we have. You don't get it. You do not remember. <clears throat> By the way, the motif of knowing and remembering and forgetting and then needing to remember again is a recurring theme throughout scripture. The Passover was instituted so that they would remember the deliverance from Egypt. That God passed over their sons and killed the Egyptians. In Joshua 4, they were to set up 12 big rocks, stones of, what were they? Remembrance. 
How many times have we seen in our study of Proverbs, Solomon say, do not forget my words. Do not forget my words. Do not forget my words. Do not forget my words, my son. Even the Lord himself knew how forgetful we would be, which is why he sets up communion. Do this to what? Remember me. We should pause here and hear the Lord's question to us. Do you remember? Will you remember? Can you remember what God has done in the scriptures, what God has done for you in the past? And if we know that, what cause is there for our current anxiety? And the right answer to that is what? There is no cause. He gives them the resume then in verse 19. Remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 in case they had forgotten? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said, well, 12. By the way, that was to make sure that they ate. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said, well, damn, seven. That was to make sure that after they had served the people, they had enough to eat. And he's saying to them, do you not yet understand? Can I put that in our common vernacular? You don't get it? You still doubt me? You've seen what I have done in the past and that has no bearing on your trust of me in the present? Oh, it's stinging for them. They thought they were on Jesus' side. They thought they were at the head table. They thought they were in the inner circle and all on the insider crowd. And he says, you, you, only a boat, a few guys, you have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, you don't get it. You don't hear. Mark, in painting this picture, has set this up and gives a conclusion because Jesus can heal the physically deaf and he will heal the physically blind and he can give understanding to their spiritually troubled and tripping, uninformed, non-remembering hearts. The disciples were slow to look through the miracle to see the God-man. They were slow to see that Jesus does more than meet physical needs. They were slow to look to the future with Christ based on their past experience with him. And you and I can fail in those same ways. So, I said to myself, so what? And I just jotted down five bullet points. This is, these were my notes to me after this. You're welcome to think about them as well. First, do I really see Jesus for who he really is? Do I see him for who he is? They, they had forgotten that he was the sustainer and the creator and the miracle worker. And they got in the boat and said, we're in trouble because we have one piece of bread and we need to feed 13 of us. And Jesus had taken proportionally far less starter loaves to feed far more people. Second question I ask myself is, do I understand that my needs are more than physical? Do I understand that my needs are more than for this world in this place? 
Jesus is saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. See the bread, bread, bread that's all the way throughout this passage that stitches it together. He's saying, look, I am a sustainer for physical bread and spiritual bread, but there are those who are threatening you with wrong influence. And the illustration he uses is of bread. But make sure we're seeing the dangers of people who would influence away from the biblical Jesus and the biblical gospel. I ask myself, fourthly, am I developing eyes to see and ears to hear? Am I developing eyes to see and ears to hear? If these men who had physically witnessed the miraculous deeds of Jesus and heard the, the authoritative words of Jesus that were unlike any they had ever heard, and they had trouble remembering the spiritual truth that was behind the physical manifestations. I think it's fair to say you and I have eyes that don't always see and ears that don't always hear as well. Do we not? And fifthly, this is one of the collateral jewels on this crown of this passage. Can I distinguish between needs and wants? Can I distinguish between needs and wants and how God meets me at the need level, not always at the want level? Jesus had provided, not just for the crowds, but these leftover baskets in both situations were intended to say there was plenty left for them to take advantage of and eat and be satisfied, be full, stuffed. And they didn't see it. Can I offer you just a real practical moment? At lunch today, maybe you could talk about ways that God has met needs in your family, with your spouse, with your friends. How, how slow we are to recognize what he's done and what he can do. Ultimately, this is going to be a part of a bigger picture that Jesus is teaching and Mark is painting between spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness, and the physical world that they were experiencing. I mean, the, the, the question of this text is, do I even know this Savior? Do I have trust in him in the past that will give me hope in the present and the future? It's salvation. God has answered our every need, every need in Christ. Forgive us of sins, hope for this life, security in eternity because of who he is and what he's done for us in just a few months from here at the cross. What a gift, what a savior who took care of eternity. How can we distrust him in the present? Boy, I hope you know him. I hope you cling to him. The good news is if you don't and if you haven't, you can today. You can leave this building with your eternity secure because this Savior sustains, protects, and keeps and supplies all that we need. That's good news. That's really good news. He saved us from sin. He saved us from Satan. He saves us from self. And he saves us from God's wrath. Alive from the grave forever interceding 
for those who need it most. If you have questions about where you stand with him, would you please not leave the building before talking to someone? People around you would love to have that conversation. I would. We'll have our prayer room open in a moment. We'd love to talk to you there. No lunch is more important than getting that right. For those of us who are Christians, oh my goodness. What kind of forgetter are you? Do you get it? I think all of us would say, oh, we do sometimes. But we're so quick to forget. Great reminder this morning, is it not?